Thank you for listening to the Hillsview Men's Ministry. We are a group of men building relationships to equip and encourage each other. Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to see everybody. Uh, good to see the kiddos out there. Um, hopefully, uh, you'll be able, be able to pick something up from this. I, I just, I just want to share some of the things I've, I've learned as I've kind of pursued truth, if you will. Um, I'm not saying I, I'm an expert in any means or anything like that. I'm, also, I'm still learning. Uh, so, I mean, I've already heard from a few folks that um, yeah, a lot of other people have good resources and things like that. On the tables, I've placed a, a few lists of, of books that I, I've read that I think are, are really thought-provoking, uh, provide a lot of good information, uh, a, a good equipping arguments, uh, evidence, data, uh, ways of thinking about uh, a lot of the big questions that you I'm sure in this room people have come in contact with, and we'll go through a little bit of that uh, here in a minute. <clears throat> um, but what, what I've been passionate about, apologetics and discipleship, um, as you can see. So, um, so apologetics and discipleship, and I, I think they go hand in hand. Uh, I don't think you can really do one well without doing the other. Uh, so discipleship without apologetics I think is ineffective because you're not equipping somebody to be able to defend and answer the questions that they're inevitably going to face as they share the gospel, share their faith with other folks. And then apologetics by itself without discipleship, it's almost kind of an academic exercise, um, and it doesn't really benefit anyone, except for maybe the person learning that or researching it, uh, unless you have a person to share it with. And that's what discipleship is. It's teaching and educating, uh, bringing somebody else along, and you don't have to be an expert to do apologetics. You don't have to go to seminary to do apologetics. Right? We're all called to be able to defend the faith, 1 Peter 3.15. Um, it's a command. It's a duty. It's a responsibility. It's an obligation. We should be able to be, we should be prepared to provide a reason for the, the hope that we have in and out of season at all times. Right? Um, so kind of what you can see from discipleship and apologetics, inherent within both of those is meaningful, trust-based relationships, deep deep relationships. Just like we've, we've been talking through all year together, right? Um, the importance of community, the importance of developing those relationships is critical. And I, um, if I were to ask the audience right now, think about your own salvation experience. Think about the first time you heard the gospel, second, third time. How many times did it take you to hear the gospel before you actually accepted it, believed it, internalized it? repented, accepted Jesus Christ? What did it take? What, what is your story? And I would, I would wager that everybody here probably can point to at least one person, if not multiple people, that spoke truth into their lives. Somebody you trusted, somebody you knew that cared about you, somebody that was able to you know, tell you the truth about, hey, I don't, I don't have it all figured out, but here's what I know, right? And I think that's the heart we have to, we have to be willing to share with other people. Speak the truth in love with, with gentleness and respect, right? Um, because if you, the danger with apologetics is that it's powerful, it's effective. When you have evidence, when you have logic, when you have reasons, rationale, a, you know, you can clearly define strengths, weaknesses, assumptions, flaws in, in thinking, contradictions. When you can point that stuff out to people, it's, it's powerful and effective. Obviously, the most effective thing is God's word, right? Um, but we can couple that with, with alternate um, supporting 
pieces of evidence and lines of logic. Um, it, it makes it powerful, but the danger there is it can really build up your pride. Um, some people can get into the mindset of, well, I can beat this person up, you know, I can win this argument, but that shouldn't be the goal of apologetics, yeah, that, and that's not effective. Because <coughs> if you belittle somebody, or you make them feel stupid, or you insult them, that's just going to turn them away. That's not going to win the hearts and minds of, of anybody, right? Um, so, um, as men, and, and with the children here, uh, and, and I know there's some folks that don't have younger kids anymore, you have older grown-up kids, um, but that discipleship, that mentorship, never stops. It's a lifelong commitment. Um, and so I, I, I hope that everybody can maybe take something away from this. Um, and I, I think as men specifically, you read the Bible and you look at the roles and responsibilities and expectations uh, that men have, and we, we really have a responsibility to teach the next generation. Um, you look in the Old Testament, and over and over and over again, the Israelites are told not to forget, to remember, to remember, don't forget. They're told over and over and over again, right? Um, because in human nature, we have a tendency to forget. So we need to be continuously reminded. Um, and that's where the body of believers comes in. That's where accountability comes in. Uh, we're able to encourage each other, remind each other, stay in the word, um, and just be refreshed on a, on a daily basis. Um, so my hope, my intent with this is, uh, you know, kind of hopefully stoke a fire, um, hunger and thirst. Maybe you have some questions. Maybe you have things that you've thought about or conversations you've had um, that you didn't know how to answer. I, I think we've all been there. Once you start engaging with folks, once you start talking about your faith, why you believe what you believe, what's true, what's, how do we determine right and wrong? What happens to us after we die? Those big questions that everybody should really think about at some point in their life. Because it's relevant to everybody, right? We all have an expiration date. We all have a point in time where we're not going to be here anymore, right? Um, so it's relevant. I mean, if what we believe is really real, it has eternal consequences for everybody. And it's a decision that everybody has to make for themselves. It's not something that your grandma can do for you. Um, it's not something your mom or dad can do for you, right? Everybody has to make that decision for themselves. Um, so we'll go ahead and uh, just a few, few other admin notes, uh, and then we'll get into prayer. But uh, So there's a list of resources, books, websites, and podcasts um, that I found are effective. And then there's also index cards on the table. Uh, so the, the point of those is for you to write down questions that you may have had, um, apologetic topics. Um, maybe there's things that you haven't been able to find an answer for, something you've struggled with. Um, Conversations you've had that have uh, you've kind of been stumped on, or wish you had a better answer for, um, and then my intent is to hopefully be able to address those going forward. Uh, the goal being to equip you guys and to share ideas and okay, well, how do you address this this question or this this challenge? And there are a lot of really good biblical answers um, to a lot of those tough questions, um, but you maybe you just haven't heard. Um, you know, the support or evidence for it. So that's what I'd like to kind of facilitate uh, with, with this series. Um, so go ahead and jot that down, and then um, look forward to that in, in January, um, kind of going deeper. So overall, what I'm just going to talk about is um, kind of setting up a fundamental problem, kind of make you aware of uh, maybe some information statistics that you, 
you might not be tracking. Um, and then kind of define terms and talk about discipleship and apologetics a little bit more. So, um, so what I hope is that um, you take a look at like Matthew 13, uh, 44, and be like the man who found the hidden treasure in the field. Um, Jesus said, kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field. And when the man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy, went and sold all that he had and bought that field. That's what I hope you uh, will take away, kind of be just on fire, excited, passionate, because it's awesome. The more you learn, the more you um, understand, strengthen your faith, the more excited I've, I've become, and hopefully the more excited you'll become as well. Um, and just no, another uh, point to ponder here, uh, Hebrews 11.6, without faith it's impossible to please God. So anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Um, with that, uh, we'll go ahead and uh, bow our heads in prayer uh, as we get in. Uh, to the lesson. So, Lord Father, thank you so much for uh, the beautiful day that you made. Uh, thank you for each man here. Uh, thank you for all the kids. Um, you're holy. You're awesome. Uh, please bless this time and bless these men. Uh, may this time be encouraging, uh, challenging. Uh, help us to reason together, uh, think, seek to understand your glory. Uh, appreciate how awesome you are. And may our hearts never cease to be amazed. Um, with your creation and just be in awe of all that you've done for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Alright. So maybe you've heard, I'm just going to give some examples, maybe, maybe you've heard a few of these at some point. And I just want you to think, how would you respond if you had it? Or how would you respond uh, if you had it? So, how can a loving God possibly send good people to hell? You know, all religions are basically the same. They teach the same things. You know, all paths lead to heaven. And, uh, you know, we're all talking about the same God, no matter what religion you're coming from. Uh, it's just a different name, right? Um, how about Jesus was just a good teacher? He wasn't necessarily God. You know, he had some good things to say. Um, he didn't really say he was God anyway, right? There's no place in the Bible where he says, I, I'm God. He doesn't say that. Show me where that's at in the Bible. Well, you can't trust the Bible. Um, it's changed so many times, you know? We don't, we don't even know if we can trust it. So many contradictions, it's not even worth believing. There's no way you could put all those animals on one boat built by one man, right? Plus, there's all kinds of flood stories in all cultures around the world. So, yeah, it's just one of, one of, one of many. The universe is billions of years old, right? That's what we hear all the time, billions of years. So the Bible's obviously wrong. It says Earth was created in six days. So science has proven the Bible's wrong. If you believe the Bible, you must be dumb. You know, we can't really trust the Bible either because, you know, we can't even know what's true. People interpret the Bible in so many ways, it doesn't really matter. Because no one knows what it means, and uh, we don't even know if it really happened. You know, religion is just a crutch for weak and ignorant people. You know, you just need to be a stronger person, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, and uh, stop being such a wuss. <clears throat> um, oh, this one's a good one. Uh, religion is just something that the ruling elite used to control the people. As uh, Karl Marx said, it's the opium of the people. So it's just a way to help people 
you know, deal with the suffering and pain in life until they die. Uh, but it doesn't really do anyone any good other than that. And of course, um, you know, more people have died in the name of religion, and specifically Christianity, than any other cause in history. So, I mean, it really doesn't do any good. We should just get rid of it altogether, right? Um, it's a waste of time. You know, it's just a social club. It's a hobby. Um, stop saying you're praying for me. It doesn't do any good. I prayed for a long time. You know, I prayed for my grandma. She had cancer. Didn't do any good. So God must not be real. Um, church is just full of judgmental and hypocritical people. I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. The sinners are much more fun. How do you respond to that? Anyone? Billy Joel fans? No. <laughs> Only the good die young? What's true for you is not true for me. Truth is relative. You do you. That's good for you, but yeah, I've got my own truth. Anybody heard any of those? Is this familiar? Some of it cuts kind of kind of close to home. Huh? There's some truth to some of it, right? A little bit. That's how Satan works. He takes, he takes something just true enough and then twists it. Because if it was completely outlandish, nobody would believe it. Right? It's like the flying spaghetti monster. So absurd and ridiculous that it doesn't make any sense. But if it, if it has a kernel of truth to it, then people will latch onto it. And everybody's got their own little barriers or obstacles um, that they use as smoke screens or uh, scapegoats. Reasons not to believe. But when it comes down to when you actually get into discipleship and apologetics, the amount of evidence is really overwhelming. It's phenomenal. Um, it's people that say these things, people that believe these things. <clears throat> it doesn't usually take long if you start asking questions. Just asking, well, why do you believe that? What makes you say that? It um, doesn't take long before uh, before the conversation just <clears throat> stops. Goes <laughs> <laughs> silent. All right, can everybody hear me? Good. All right. So you might recognize this one. <clears throat> the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. Misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, philicidal, <laughs> pestilential, megalomaniac, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Wow. Yeah. Dang. Anybody know where that's from? <laughs> Richard Dawkins, God delusion. One of the most outspoken atheists of our time, right? Um, a, lot of, a lot of anger there, huh? Yeah. Well, I would just re respond to that with Romans 1 22. It says, although they claim to be wise, they become fools. Just because somebody has a lot of education um, doesn't mean they always say smart things doesn't mean everything they say makes sense. and doesn't mean they're not ignorant. Because I think it's pretty clear looking at that. Um, I wouldn't say that's an objective viewpoint. 
or balanced, <laughs> balanced view of uh, trying to understand the nature and character of God. I could go on, but we'll, we'll stop there. I think, I think you get the point. Um, if you haven't heard any of these, well, you just did, and you probably will again at some point. So there's nothing new. A lot of these things are just rehashed, recycled versions of a lot of the same, same things. And like I said before, it's not in. A lot of people will make it out to be there's a there's a narrative out there, you know, that science is has basically destroyed religion. There's no purpose for it. Uh, it's done away with it. It's uh, proven that it's not true. Um, but it's really not an intellectual argument. When you get down to it and you start to dig down into the assumptions that people are making, they're not making scientific statements. They're making faith statements. They're making subjective opinions, not based on fact. And a lot of times the interpretations of science and data, as, as Dr. Enns could probably attest to, you can have doctors from different, um, different worldview perspectives looking at the same data and come to different conclusions because they're operating from different assumptions. So that's what I'd like to get to, is helping us to take a look at a statement and be able to look at some of the implicit assumptions that are, that are buried within the actual question that you're getting um, and evaluate the questioner and get good at listening, get good at asking questions. The more you ask questions why, why do you believe that? What makes you think that's true? And listen and try to dig and see what the actual motivation is behind the person asking the question. Some people are asking genuine questions because they're actually seeking truth. And some people have hardened hearts. Don't waste your time. But you, that's where you need to pray, use discernment. Um, maybe they're not ready. All right. So those are some things you might hear. Now I'd like to... Uh, Take a moment and take a look at some of the uh, some of the data from the Barna Group. If you've heard of the Barna Group, they've done some studies. Uh, they put out articles and research and surveys, kind of the state of the church and um, religious issues and stuff like that. If you haven't heard of them, look them up. Uh, the, their website's on your sheet there. Um, they've got a lot of really good information. This is a little dated, but I, I think it's pretty powerful. It's from 2004-2005. Um, but based on our society, I don't think things have gotten better. Uh, if anything, they're all worse. So um, let's take a look at what they found. So what they say is less than 10% of professing Christians in America have a biblical worldview. Less than 10%. Only 51% of those surveyed, um, and they did thousands, thousands of senior pastors, 51% of senior pastors in America have a biblical worldview. Just over half. So, what's the obvious question there? Well, how are they defining biblical worldview? What does that mean? Is there some sort of Bible trivia test that they put these people through? <laughs> so what you see up here, these are the eight questions, or eight statements, that they, they asked all these people in this survey. And their criteria was, you have to agree with all eight statements in order to have a biblical worldview. And as you read through this list, this is pretty broad, pretty basic to a lot of fundamental doctrines of the, of the faith, right? Of Christianity. Uh, we're not getting into 
esoteric topics or things that divide different denominations or whatever. Um, so the first one, absolute truth exists. The source of world truth is the Bible. The Bible is accurate in all the principles it teaches. Eternal salvation cannot be earned. It is a free gift. Jesus lived a sinless life on earth. Every person has a responsibility to evangelize or share their faith. Satan is a literal human being, or literal being, and not, not just some idea or concept or force or a symbol of evil. And then lastly, God is all-knowing, all-powerful, creator of the universe, and he still rules the creation today. Do any of those sound like really wild claims to make for this audience? And only 51% of the senior pastors in America, across America, agreed with all eight of those. Unbelievable. And the other weird thing they mentioned is that actually, for those of those senior pastors that went to seminary, 40, only 45% of those had, had a biblical worldview. So the, the percentage of pastors that had a biblical worldview actually went down for pastors that went to seminary. Which makes you wonder, what, what are they teaching at seminary that's causing them to doubt some of these statements? It's a little concerning. Um, so the same study found that two-thirds of self-described born-again Americans believe that there's no such thing as absolute truth. Which is funny because that is an absolute truth claim. Claiming that there's no absolute truth is saying that's an absolute truth. <clears throat> so over 60% of folks say that you can't even know what's true. Um, that truth is not knowable. Um, and all that you can count on is your own personal experience. So think about that again. Born-again Christians are saying that there is no absolute truth. But by definition, born-again Christians have basically said that there's an absolute need for them to have a Savior to forgive them of their absolute sins. See the contradiction? And these are people that call themselves Christians. This isn't talking about agnostics or atheists or noners or New Agers. Um, so these are people that call themselves Christians. Um, I've, I found this a lot. I don't know if you if you have a similar experience, but um, I've gone on a few trips and, and talked and shared my faith with folks, you know, the short-term mission trips. And that was one of the things I kept coming up. Um, you start asking questions about what people believe, why they believe what they believe, um, different topics. Um, and it seems like people think of religion or uh, philosophy as like a buffet, where they just kind of pick and choose, oh, well, I like this, this makes me feel good, I'll take this side of the issue because it's less likely to cause conflict, or it's more tolerant, or makes, um, makes me feel like I'm enlightened. Um, it's not really based on a logical, comprehensive set of values, principles, um, or consistent set of assumptions. Because they'll argue one thing um, using a certain line of logic, you shift the topic, and they'll use a completely different line of logic. And it's like, well, wait a minute. Um, 
But again, they'll just come back with, well, truth is relative. So it's situational ethics. <clears throat> we'll, we'll, we can talk more about that later. Um, so the other, the other thing. So, okay, so what? So thing, things are bad. <laughs> people, people don't understand their faith. People don't um, really know why they believe what they believe. Um, but one of the problems is, uh, this, the Barnard Group also did another study, and over 60% of the teens that grow up in the church leave the faith completely. They're leaving the, the church in droves, and they have been over the last several decades. Um, it also found that only 5% of those who grew up in the church were biblically literate, enough to be considered Christian. So the majority of these self-proclaimed professing Christians um, don't even have the vocabulary or understanding of, of the doctrinal issues that are necessary to understand what salvation means, what's required, what's not required, and what the Bible actually says about it. And so a lot of these folks are uh, they're leaving the church in droves. Um, so my hope is, again, the motivation here for discussing discipleship and apologetics, discipleship is based on relationships. So I just, I just had my, my fourth child, and his name's Kyle, supported by a student. And um, I want him to grow up knowing the Lord. There's a spiritual war going on. Whether you want to be, um, whether you think you're involved in it or not, you can't sit on the sidelines. Um, Ephesians 6, 10 through 12. Be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so you can make your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this world's darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, take up the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you'll be able to stand your ground. And having done everything to stand, stand firm. With the belt of truth buckled around your waist, breastplate of righteousness, rain, your feet fitted with the readiness of the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Pray in the Spirit at all times with every kind of prayer and petition. Um, so as many of you know, I'm in the Air Force, um, so I kind of come come at this from a, uh, I guess, a little, slightly different perspective. Some, some of you in the room uh, obviously shared similar experiences, um, but I was like, trying to think of this from a strategic level, a tactical level, operationally. How do how do we employ this? How do we apply this? Um, so in, in the military, we look at we look at our adversaries, we look at their strengths, their capabilities, threats, um, and you try to plan out, you know, how, what's going to be the most effective tactic? What's the strategy? How do we win? How do we minimize our losses? Um, how do we achieve our objectives? Achieve the intent, right? Um, and discipleship and apologetics 
as far as your faith goes, I think it makes a lot of sense. There's a lot of, a lot of things that can translate and correlate uh, to how to think about this, right? <clears throat> so going up in, against an adversary, one of the key objectives a lot of times is to minimize the enemy's ability to fight back. You want to try to decrease their situational awareness. You want to sever their communications. So in the Air Force, I'm not sure if in the Army, you probably do a similar type thing, but we call it red team. So you try to think of it from the adversary's perspective. What can they do? What are their capabilities? You know, what are their game plans? What have we seen them do in the past? You analyze that. You take a look at it. You come up with the game plan. Okay, how, what, what objectives do I need to try to meet? Okay, what's the goal? My goal for my kids is to equip them with, with means to defend their faith, to be able to answer those tough questions. You know, when you know, the popular kid or one of their teachers or one of their you know, friend's parents says something or they hear something on the news, um, are they going to have the critical thinking skills to be able to analyze and question, not in a skeptic, doubting way, but not accepting everything they hear? You know, having a healthy skepticism and understanding of some of the implicit messages that are being sent and transmitted um, and then guarding against the possibilities of how is, how is the enemy going to be attacking my family? So if you, haven't, if you haven't felt spiritual warfare in your life, if you haven't sensed it, I'd be worried. Because what does that mean? That means you're not a threat. The enemy's not worried about you. You're out of the fight. But as soon as you start uh, engaging folks, as soon as you start sharing your faith with people, expect to be attacked. Expect there to be resistance. There should be. That's what you would expect if the Bible's true. Right? So what, what, what is the enemy going to try to do to our families? Going to try to break up marriages. Put, pit the kids against the parents. Sever that communication. Keep you so busy, so entertained, so distracted, that you don't have time to disciple your kid. Right? That's what I would do. If I was the enemy and that I was trying to break break up God's plan, just just think about that. Brainstorm. Think about how that how that works. What is the enemy doing? And the C.S. Lewis and Mere Christianity and the Screw Tape Letters, it's awesome. If you've never read them, highly recommend it. Um, kind of goes through that red teaming type of type of concept. What is the devil trying to do? What are the schemes? Prowls around like a roaring lion looking to devour, right? What are what are the what are the tactics he's going to try to use against your family, against your kids, and how are you going to protect against that? Prayer. What's the sword? What's the offensive weapon? In? Sword of the spirit, right? The word, the word of God. If you're not equipping yourself by reading scripture, by memorizing scripture. You're at a disadvantage. You're unarmed against an enemy that is actively seeking to destroy your family. The threat's real, whether you want to be part of it or not. Um, and I, I think there's plenty of evidence to back that up. You just look at what's going on in our country. The attacks on marriage, 
attacks on families, the breaking up of the family unit. Um, devil's been at this for a long time. So severing that communication, what's, um, what's something else? Another way to sever communication, not just with your family, with other believers. That's why Hebrews says, don't give up meeting together. Continue in fellowship. All the more as you see that you're approaching, encourage one another. Right? Because together we're stronger. But if I if I wanna if I wanna take out a battalion of folks, what do you do? Sever the communication, divide them up, pick them off one by one. That's way easier than taking on everybody at the same time. Right? So we have to continue to encourage one another. We have to continue meeting together. We have to continue strengthening and equipping ourselves, keeping keeping the iron sharp, as iron sharpens iron. Right? Anybody know what today is? December 7th, 1941. Pearl Harbor. That's today. I thought it was kind of fitting. And it's like, wow, okay. Um, if anybody saw the movie Torah, 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 um, I didn't show up, right? But in the movie, at the very end, um, the uh, Japanese naval commander in chief, Isoruku Yama, Yamamoto, uh, says, I'm afraid what we've done is awaken the sleeping giant, filled him with terrible resolve. Now, what's funny about that? Just like I was saying, they can't actually find anything where that's written, where that was actually said. But you'll see this attributed all over the place, as if it's fact. Um, it was just written for the movie. It's a great line. It's great cinema. Um, that's an actual picture of what he looks like. But um, Surprise attack, right? So an element of surprise is one of the elements of war. That's how you win. You catch the enemy by surprise. But his concern is, by striking at America, that it was going to bring us into the war. And he realized that we had a lot of military capability that was going to endanger them if, if we got involved in World War II, obviously. We, we know how the rest of the story goes. I think we've experienced a slow-motion Pearl Harbor in our nation. It's like a slow-moving train wreck. If it's subtle enough, gradual enough, people get used to it. It's kind of like boiling a frog or a lobster, you know. If you throw them into a hot pan, they'll jump out if they can. But if you just slowly turn the temperature up, little by little, they get used to it. And then they'll slowly cook to death without even realizing what's going on. Okay. <laughs> Punctuation is important. So uh, I know we just finished Thanksgiving. Um, say, let's eat grandma. I just want to say, commas save lives. <laughs> Something totally different without that comma there. All right, why do I say that? Okay, because definitions matter. <coughs> so when you're talking with your kids, when you're talking with your coworkers, talking with your neighbors, family. You're talking with people from different worldview perspectives, different assumptions about what's true, different assumptions about reality. 
So I went, to, I went to the Air Force Academy. Some of my best friends when I was, when I was there uh, were Mormons, LDS. And this is when I, my real spiritual journey started. So I accepted Jesus when I was seven. I did like three or four times, right? Because I wanted to seal the deal, make sure I did it right. I was in church. Um, but I thought it was good. You know, I accepted Jesus. All right, I'm good to go. Got my insurance policy. Uh, don't, didn't really worry about it after that. Until I got to the academy. Um, had a friend actually invite me to the Navigators. Um, I don't know if anybody is familiar with the Navigators. If you've heard of Crew, FCA, University, Practice Student Union, any of those college ministries. It's campus ministry to outreach to, to college kids. So I went to the Navigators. Um, I met with this guy, Larry Matthews, one-on-one, -on -one, about an hour, once a week, for about the next three years. That was my discipleship experience. It was awesome. Because I, I didn't know what book was where. I didn't, I didn't read the Bible. I knew I was a Christian, right, like so many other people. But I didn't really know anything. I accepted Jesus, whatever that meant. Um, but it was over the course of those three years, I met with him every week. And ask him questions. I would read parts of the Bible and be like, what, what is this talking about? What does this mean? Wait a minute, I, I read this in this other chapter, this other book. That doesn't make sense. That contradicts itself. This, this can't be true. But he would walk me through and show me scripture, using scripture and scripture to, to do exegesis and hermeneutics, basically. How to interpret the Bible, how to study the Bible, how to have a quiet time, how to pray, how to memorize, memorize scripture. Um... And I still keep in touch with him today. Uh, he's still, still on staff. Uh, and he's struggling with kidney disease right now, but I'm not sure how much longer he'll be there. But he's, he cared about me. Uh, he cared to tell me the truth. One time I was supposed to meet with him, he came and knocked on my door because I was, I was asleep because I only got like two hours of sleep the night before. <clears throat> Studying for a, a GR. Pastor Ron knows about that. Yeah. It's basically a test. Um, so I slept in. We were supposed to meet at a certain time. I didn't show up. He cared enough to come into my dorm, knock on my door, wake me up, and say, hey, we're supposed to meet. <laughs> Anybody had that happen to you? That's how much he cared. He cared about me. Um, anyway, <clears throat> so as I started to grow my faith, I started asking questions. I have some really good friends. They're Mormons. I'm like, oh, these, these guys call themselves Christians, right? <clears throat> yeah, they believe the same things we do. Basically, they, they believe in Jesus. But the more I talked with them, the more I had conversations, and I started, I was so confused because we would have conversations, talk about things, use these words, the same words. And they meant something completely different to those folks. So when you're talking with people from other worldviews, definitions matter. Because they're embedded in all of these words that are up here, and much more. They've got their own little um, Christianese, just like we do. But they have a lot of the same words, but they carry a completely different definition and connotations and baggage and history that go with those words. And so when they say those words, they sound the same to us, but they mean something totally different. Yeah, and you see Jesus up there? They have a totally different idea about who Jesus was, who he is, who God the Father is. They don't believe in the Trinity. You don't, you don't hear Mormons talking about the Trinity. Atonement, baptism, baptism's an interesting one. Baptism's not about what, what God has done for you. It's not a public proclamation. It's about their promise to what they're going to do for God in order to earn 
favor. It's a works-based religion. But I didn't know that. It took me years to catch on to, wait a minute, these guys don't believe the same thing we do. So make sure you're careful and you ask questions and you do your homework and study because it's very subtle. It's insidious. And you might not pick up on it right away. All right, so what is faith? Faith is another kind of wishy-washy word that a lot of people struggle with. And um, for the longest time, I thought faith was like, oh, I hope it works out. Um, or like, I have faith that this chair is going to hold me up when I sit in it. That's not a biblical definition of faith. Right? Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Faith is the substance of things hoped for, evidence things not seen. Ephesians 2.8-9, It's by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves, the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So what do those two verses tell you about faith? Faith, faith is based on our relationship with Jesus. It's a trust. It's a relationship. Your faith is... I have faith that Mitch is going to do what he says. That's, that's the kind of faith we're talking about. I believe if Mitch says something, he, he's going to do it. If he says he's going to meet me for coffee at 9 o'clock at the Wired Woodman, I have faith he's going to be there. He's going to keep his word. That's what faith is. Faith is trusting that Jesus was who he said he was, that he did what he said he was going to do. And in that we have faith that we're going to be with him. Because he defeated death. He was the perfect sacrifice for our sins. That's that's faith. Does that make sense? Blew my mind. I I had no idea that's what it meant. And it's a big deal for me. Maybe maybe you guys, it's not a big deal, but for me it was huge. Um, so definitions matter. I think I'll uh, I think I'll stop with this. It's a great lead-in segue for what I hope to do uh, next month in January. Uh, so if you've been interested, if this has been thought-provoking, uh, stay tuned. Come back. Um, so we have a duty and an obligation as men. We have a commandment, the Great Commission. He said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, surely and with you to the very end of the age. So this is the mission the church has been working on since Jesus left. So what, what, what do the words here say? Go and make converts of all nations? No, go make disciples. So what does that mean? We'll get into that next time. How does Jesus define disciple? What does it mean to be a disciple? What's the cost of discipleship? What kind of level of commitment are we talking about?